So we're starting into chapter 6 of the book of John today, and this is a very significant chapter that uh, we absolutely cannot take on today. We're just going to do the introduction to it because this story of Jesus feeding uh, the people is, is really just an introduction to, to some remarkable things that are going to take place through the rest of this. And uh, it, one, of the, one of the stranger interactions that Jesus will have, we always have it in our head that, uh, that, that the most important thing to do is to make sure uh, you always present yourself in the best way, in the most attractive way, and that everybody is a part of it. Yet here Jesus at a moment when his popularity as at its peak says some things that are really hard to understand. And as a result of it, a lot of people go away. But that's, that's coming up. We'll deal with that after I get back from Florida. Right now, we're just going to start with this first part of chapter 6. And let's pray. Father in heaven... We ask your spirit now be with us as we, as we look at your word. Speak to us. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So John 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So we're putting a context on this. This is it's always important to notice the context statements at the beginning. So Jesus here has been doing a number of things. He's been healing people. This has attracted attention. People are starting to follow him. And he intentionally goes to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, a place where there isn't much. He goes to a remote location. It would be like saying, uh, he headed up into the mountains. And a large crowd of people followed him because they had seen what he had been doing. Now, you remember all along we've been talking about throughout the book of John from the beginning, this crisis of identity, people trying to understand who Jesus is, trying to understand what he can do. And one of the most important groups that was trying to figure out who Jesus is was the disciples. Because it was going to be key once Jesus had completed his work and returned to the Father's side, these disciples were the ones that were going to go out and tell the story. So it was key that they understood who he was. And I think a big part of this story is Jesus attempting to teach them more of his identity. Verse 3, Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples the Jewish Passover festival was near. All of this information is relevant. The context of the Passover coming up, the idea of, of associated with the Passover was, was the Passover meal, the feast. Later, Jesus would take that and turn it into the Last Supper, which we, we celebrate with what we call communion. But this is the context of the time, and there's a lot of expectation. And you're going to see that expectation playing out later in this, in this chapter because there are things that people want from Jesus. Think about that for a minute. Are you one of those people? You have a good long agenda for what Jesus needs to be doing? There are a lot of people in this crowd who are developing an agenda. 
And, and it goes something like this. Well, wait a minute, this guy can heal the sick and, and raise the dead. Boy, with him in front of an army, it would be hard to lose. And then we could be in charge of everything. You see how, how we start to think. This Jesus really is a, is, is a handy tool to get what I want. Verse 5, Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Have you ever had Jesus ask you a question that you have no answer for? Do you have that kind of relationship with him? Has he ever put things before you and, and you're, you're like, that's a ridiculous question, Lord. Why would you ask me something like that? Well, this is what happens here. Verse 6, he asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip was not wrong. It was a large crowd. And they didn't really have a lot of money. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Now I can imagine, if I had been there, if I put myself in that scene with the disciples, and Jesus stands up and says, where are we going to get food for all these people? I'd have been like, why are we even here? If we were planning on feeding the people, why didn't we stay over there? Why are we in the middle of nowhere? And why are you asking us to feed these people? And then Andrew, he, you know, he'd been all Andrew-like, you know, he's always optimistic, comes up with this little kid who's got five loaves and two fish. And I'd have been like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Stop bringing foolishness. And, and maybe somebody said that to him. So Andrew had lost a little bit of his excitement. So he was a little bit like, yeah, but, you know, what good are they going to do with all these? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. All right, now, now there's something very interesting in this story and in the way this story is told in other places uh, within the scripture. And uh, it's an interesting point, particularly for those who read very closely and carefully. Now, we have always embraced the notion, and I think rightly, but we have always embraced the notion that, that Jesus multiplied the bread. And in fact, you'll find that very explicitly stated in the context of Ellen White. But if you very carefully read each of the passages, it never actually says that. 
Now, I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm just, I'm just noting, and, and you can do this when you read your Bible, because every one of us brings a certain set of expectations to every story that we read. And sometimes it's good for us to challenge ourselves on all of our assumptions. But it is an interesting point that it never literally says that. Now, I think there's evidence for it. In particular, if you go to Matthew 16, you'll hear the story of Jesus. He's crossing the sea with his disciples and he makes a comment, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And they're talking with each other. Oh, it's because we didn't bring bread. That's why he's talking about bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Did you forget about the 5,000 and the five loaves? And did you forget about the 4,000 and the seven loaves? I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about something else. So I think there's an implication there that, that goes back even and connects itself to the temptation in the wilderness where, where the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command these rocks to become bread. There's a reality here about Jesus' capacity to produce physical food. And then this sin is a tie-in with the whole concept of the manna in the wilderness. The food that would miraculously show up. And that was on people's minds in the context of this whole story. But I find it very interesting that regardless of exactly how it happened and exactly what took place, Jesus chose the five loaves and the two fish as the catalyst for what was about to happen. Now I wonder, was the little guy actually the only one with food? Was he the only one with a good mother that sent him out that day? It is Mother's Day weekend after all. She'd pack him a little lunch, send him off. Maybe if you had those, uh, do you remember those, I don't remember what they were called, edited Dedgering or something books that uh, were, were Bible story books. And, and I remember reading them as a kid. And, and in the story of this, his mom packs a little lunch for him and he heads out for this. Maybe that's what happened. I wonder if anybody else had anything. One of the interesting things that happens is that once generosity is demonstrated, it very often produces generosity in others. Have you ever noticed that? But when we get into a scarcity mentality, when we get into a hoarding mentality, then often you have people with too much and it goes to waste, while other people have nothing. Yet once, once, once that's broken down and people start to share, suddenly it turns out there's a lot more than anybody knew there really was. So we came up with this idea when I was at the Forest Lake Church. I don't remember who came up with it. I think it was Pastor Barbara came up with it. You see, one of the challenges we had there was, was we had three different services, and, and, and the timing was weird, and there were way too many people, and there was no room where we could have like a fellowship event. We could never have a potluck or anything like that. And so, so she came up with the idea, I think it was her, that let's have a tailgate picnic in the parking lot. That was always kind of funny because her husband, Les, he was the publishing director uh, at the conference. And he would always, when it was his turn to announce, we would have him do announcements from time to time. He would always mess up and call it a tailgate party. 
And that, that always chagrined her greatly because in her mind, a, a tailgate party incorporated a lot of elements that would not be appropriate in the church parking lot. So she would always scold him. It's a picnic, not a party. But it really did kind of turn into a party. Not, not with that stuff that you're not allowed to bring to the church parking lot, but it, it turned into a grand event. And people would actually come out early. We did it a number of times. They would come out early and, and set up in the parking lot. They'd set up tents and, and, and they'd have a whole section, you know, maybe their, their Sabbath school class would be the ones organizing it or their friend group from school or whatever it was. And they would mark out sections of the lot and they would, they would prepare all their things and they would bring their food and everybody would bring food. And, and then, you know what you did after that? And you just took your plate and you walked around. And everybody would say, oh, here, try some of mine. Come try some of this. Or people would be like, we've got too many cookies. You're just walking around trying to give away cookies. This is what happens when, when that wall breaks down and people begin to share. And then when the blessing of Jesus is on it, that little bit, through the involvement of others and through the blessing of Jesus, becomes more than enough for everyone. So as we read this story and reflect on this story, the first point I want you to take away from this is that this is about God's ability to abundantly provide for his people. But I also want you to notice that the way he likes to do it is to start with the catalyst of a gracious gift. A little boy with five loaves and two fish says, I don't know if this will help, but here's what I've got. And Jesus says, that's exactly what we needed. And it starts things rolling. And the combination of the effect it has on God's people and the blessing that God puts on it turns into an abundance. More than enough. So I, I believe in a, very strongly in a certain principle, and that principle is this. God will never ask us as individuals or as a people to do anything that he hasn't already provided for us to be able to do. In terms of talents and abilities, if there's something he wants us to do, then he's put those talents and abilities in our midst. If there's a task he's calling us to, then, then he has cleared the way for us to do it. If there are challenges that, that require finance, then, then he has put within us the capacity to do those things. When we are generous, and then he pours his blessing on top. It's the formula. It's how it works. And it starts with an act of generosity. So now I want to take that story and I want to apply it or try to apply it here to us at this time in this day. It's always easy for me 
And I don't know how your mind works or, or, or how you think, but it's always easy for me to be concerned that there won't be enough. It's kind of my nature. I've, I think I've warned you, I'm a little bit conservative by nature. I used that word earlier when we were talking about our whole approach here to the, to the mandates and all. I, I'm, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to waste stuff and run out. I don't want to be frivolous. But here's the problem with that mentality. Sometimes that mentality leads you to hang on really tightly to your five loaves and two fish and put it behind your back and say, no, I don't have anything. And it creates a scarcity mentality where everyone is defending. Everyone is hanging on to what they have for fear that there's not enough. So as I was in my, uh, so I have, a, I have a Bible reading plan that I've done for a number of years. I really started doing it when I lived in Yakima. And then we went to Marietta and then we went down to Orlando. And now we're here and I've been doing this thing year after year. And, and just this last week, Matthew 21 happened to be in my reading. And I was thinking about this story in John 6. And I read this, this parable in Matthew 21. And I'd never thought about these two in the same context. <clears throat> so I want to read you this parable. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. All right, so, so what connection did I see in these stories? Well, here's the connection I saw. There was a little boy that day on the hillside that was willing to share the harvest. And before that point, everybody was kind of hanging on to their own stuff. But that little boy was willing to share. And as a result of that, great good was done. And 
and blessing came to everyone. So here's where I want to connect the dots on that. God has given us this place, and it's a great place. It's a fabulous place. We, we rejoice in this space that represents the faithfulness of a previous generation. How many of you were here when this was built? It's another generation that gave us this. It's their generosity that has provided us this opportunity. So we're in this vineyard, stewards in our day of this place. But the purpose of this place is not just, and I say just because it is this for, to some degree, but it's not just for us to have a really awesome clubhouse. It's not just for that. Now it is for that. It's an awesome place to come and be with fellow believers and fellowship and, and worship God and have that experience. But it's not just for that. You see, there is a harvest that the Lord expects. And the harvest is what comes when, when the good seed is planted and it's given time to grow. But the harvest requires a certain generosity and a certain labor on the part of those who enjoy the vineyard they've been given. Now, I don't think there's anybody here that, that is wanting to, uh, you know, kill the son of, of the one who, who gave the vineyard. I don't think there's any overt intention like that. But yet if we're not careful, it's very easy for us to get into that hang on to what is mine mentality. That if the boy with the loaves and fish had hung on to this great miracle that takes place that involves the blessing of God and the sharing of God's people, it never happens. And it's very easy to find ourselves on a day where the king comes and says, where's the harvest? To say, um, well, we just kind of kept it all to ourselves and used it ourselves. And we don't want to find ourselves in verse 43. It says, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, we don't have to be faithful in the generation past. And we don't have to be faithful in the generation to come. The only generation, the only era of this church that we who are gathered here right now have to be faithful is the one right now. But we do have to be faithful right now. What does God want to do? What does it look like going forward? What opportunities is he laying before us? What will the world be like? What will Boulder be like after COVID? What new opportunities are out there? Can we have a powerful impact 
on this hill, in this town, in this place. We certainly have an awesome head start. What can we do with this? Again, it's tempting to to just try to keep what God gave us in decent shape. But I want to bring another parable to this. And we'll close with this one. Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your bag of gold in the ground. See, here it is, what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's where I see these coming together. This is not a one bag of gold house. This is not a one bag of gold community. God has given this place at least two, if not five. Okay? This is a blessed place. And you are a blessed people. And God has provided for you abundantly in your life, and he has provided for you abundantly in this place. Now, what would he have us do? The interesting thing to me in this story is, is I get the sense that the guy who was given the five, he went out and he made five more, and he also lived pretty good. You know, I kind of get the feeling that he didn't just live like a pauper. He had five bags of gold and he turned it into ten. And at the same time, the Lord sustained him and he had a pretty good life. And I think that happened with the man with two as well. I think the only guy that lived as a pauper was the one who had the one and he was afraid to do anything with it. You see, when I read the story of the parable of Jesus feeding the 5,000, 
the little kid, because he gave away his lunch, doesn't mean he went hungry. He probably ended up eating more than five loaves and two fish. Because generosity resulted in God's blessing and the blessing of others. And what came of it was more than he even started with. Now, I believe God can do that. And I believe God will do that in this place. And when he comes back, I don't want to say to him, well, here's your bag of gold. We kept it safe. We all came in here every week and, and dug up the bag of gold and looked at it, and then we, we buried it again. It's all here. We lived in poverty. No. So much more opportunity than that. If we will each bring our little bit to Jesus. And I mean that in every way. I mean that in giving. We talked about giving earlier. I mean that in our talents. I mean that in our willingness to engage with others. I mean that in our love. I mean that in every way. If we will all bring our little bit and bring it to Jesus, he will take it and he will multiply it. And you won't just get back what little bit you gave. The result of the multiplication will be you will gain more from the blessing that Jesus has done than you even brought in the first place. The only way we fail is if we bury it. Because the promise of blessing is here. So let's go forward with this abundance mentality, not the scarcity mentality. Let's go forward with the notion that, that what little I have to give, I put it in Jesus' hands, and it's going to do great things. Whether it be my time or my talents or my treasure, whatever it is. Let's be like that little kid who said, I, here's what I got, and put it in Jesus' hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God of all blessing and all abundance, and we reside in this space today as the result of the blessing and the abundance and the generosity of the generations that have gone before us. Each one has moved your mission forward in their day, in their circumstance. And now we find ourselves gathered here in a new day, in a new circumstance. We don't even necessarily know what exactly you want. It's a little bit like you saying, we look down from this hill across this community and you're saying to us, who's going to give them something to eat? And we're like, how would we do that? But maybe there's five loaves and two fish here that if we'll put them in your hands, you will turn into abundant blessing, not just within this house, but to all of those around.
Lord, we're going to bring our weakness, our foolishness, and our lack. And we're going to give it to you and trust that you're going to turn it into an overabundance. In Jesus' name, amen.